Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have about your health, and debunking some of the many myths around our health. And today, it's a real pleasure to speak to Dr. Neil Stanley. And he's written a book called How to Sleep Well. And we've just been discussing before we came on, sleep is something that we all do. So hopefully it's something you'll all be very interested in. So sleep is very important to all of us. And I'm so excited. I've been wanting to talk about sleep for a long time. It's something that I've talked about a lot as a pillar of our well-being. I think it's so important for us, for our health and well-being. So Neil, today we're going to be talking about very many things. Let me tell you a little bit about Neil. He started working on sleep when he was 16. He has been working at the Neuroscience Division of the RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine in Farnborough. And since then, he has been involved in numerous research studies, a notable one being a study in Pakistan where the team recorded sleep in eight people for six nights at 18,500 feet. (laughs) You're almost in the moon there. In Neil took up a position in the Human Psychopharmacology Research Unit at the University of Surrey, where he became the Director of Sleep Research. Then he created and ran a 24-bed trial sleep laboratory, primarily doing clinical trials into the effects of medications on sleep. He has also set up and developed the sleep service at the London Clinic. Now, Neil, in his book, said if he's not talking about sleep, he is writing about sleep. And if he is not writing about it, he's reading about it. And if not reading about it, he is probably asleep. (laughs) So welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. And your book is called How to Sleep Well, The Science of Sleeping Smarter, Living Better and Being More Productive, which are all things I highly recommend, obviously. And as well as being evidence-based information about sleep, it's also very funny. I did laugh out loud a few times, which was always good. (laughs) So tell us a little bit more about your career and your passion from the age of 16 for sleep. Well, it it was by accident, essentially. Um, I was a relatively good student at a decidedly average comprehensive school, in Farnborough. Um, The idea was to go to sixth form, do maths, physics and chemistry, and then study chemistry at Strathclyde. That was my dream. Um, But when I went to sixth form, I absolutely hated it. I I was 16. I thought I was an adult and they taught me like a child still. So the first week I was at sixth form, I looked in the local paper, saw there was this job uh, that was vaguely scientific as an assistant scientific officer in the scientific civil service working at the Institute of Aviation Medicine, an RES station. And back in 1982, uh, it had a three-bed sleep lab, which worldwide was probably one of the biggest. Uh, and uh, that's it. Uh, 42 years later, all I've ever done really is watch other people fall asleep. Uh, which when you say it out loud sounds a bit creepy, but uh, so there was no real, there was no real passion. It's something that, uh, as the old Motown song says, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Um, and so I'm, I'm now, I mean, behind me, you can see that there are, well, there's just over 500 
books about sleep and they're just the ones I've bought in the last three years. My personal library of sleep books is over 3,000 books long. First book or the earliest book I've got is from 1547 and I probably buy you know, a hundred or so books a, a year about sleep from, you know, usually early books. I'm, I'm very fascinated on the history of sleep. So it's become my all-consuming passion. And the, the quote you gave in your introduction is is pretty true. I, it, I have very little life outside of reading, writing, or talking about sleep. So it's a passion that I've developed. I'm very glad we're talking to you about this today. Now, in your book, you say, <clears throat> excuse me, you say that virtually every major disease has been linked to sleep. And you say that sleep affects our work, our school performance, our relationships, our emotional well-being and our health. So tell us a bit more about that before we dive into the specifics. Well, interestingly, in your introduction, you use the, the phrase uh, that sleep is a pillar of our well-being. Um, and I don't see it like that because pillars are separate. And for me, um, sleep is the very foundation of good physical, mental and emotional health. It, it's, it, it's, the, it's the basis on which we build everything up from. And that's the point of sleep. Sleep has been in the evolutionary record for about 450 million years. It's a universal phenomenon. Basically, anything with something that resembles a brain will sleep. And we even believe that uh, organisms that don't have a brain also have a period, maybe not of sleep as we know it, but of rest. Um, And the fact that it's persisted through all species across such a long period of time shows that it is absolutely vital. So you'll actually die of complete lack of sleep not long after you die from complete lack of water, and about six times quicker than you die from lack of food. So that just shows you how fundamentally important sleep is. And so, yes, it has been associated with increased risk of pretty much every disorder. There is no good thing about poor sleep. And we fool ourselves and we believe that we can cheat sleep. And our society uh, is a great example of how we believe we can cheat cheat sleep. But as I say, it is a time for repair and recuperation. Just to give you a very, very simple example. If you have one poor night's sleep tonight, tomorrow, you're four times more likely to catch the common cold. It's as simple as that. So, yes, it's not a, let's say, I don't believe it's a column or a pillar. It is a foundation. It's what we build everything we do upon, and we we injure it uh, at our peril. Very sound advice there. And one thing you said in your book, and I've read this in so many other books about various aspects of health, we are all very individual and what we need to do for our sleep is going to vary from from the next person. And the first question you ask in your book is, how do you feel during the day on a scale of naught to 10, where naught is that you have an irresistible desire to fall asleep? And 10, you are most awake than you have ever been. And I want to tell you some good news. I would actually put myself at nine. Um, My friends call 
sleeping my superpower. I'm I'm very, very good at sleeping. And I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But but tell us more about how most people would rate themselves on a scale of naught to ten. Well, you're a very rare beast in my experience. Um, <laughs> I, if, if I'm doing a lecture, I'll ask this question of the audience. Very rarely would I ever get somebody saying a 10. Maybe one or two people will say they're nines, but most people are sixes or sevens. And that just depresses me because we live in a society where people are trying to be healthy. They're trying to do what's right. Um you know, people are eating better, they're exercising uh, more often, they're, uh, you know, looking after themselves, you know, rates of drinking, smoking, all these sorts of things have dropped. Um, but they're not doing the one thing that will actually make them feel better. So you have people, oh, you know, I'll have a glass of wine with my meal or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go for a spa day or I'll, I need a weekend away, I need to relax, I need to do this. Um, and if they got a good night's sleep every night, they wouldn't need to do half of these things because they would feel good. Um, and we've we've rather sort of settled, should we say, on feeling a bit rubbish each day. And we think that's you know probably all that we can we can hope for. And okay, it's it's raining and very windy as we record this, uh, and it is miserable. And you know, maybe uh, on a, a you know late on a Wednesday afternoon, <laughs> it's not the best time of of life. But as I say, I think we should be asking ourselves this question: Why are we going through life at you know less than our potential? Can you imagine if everybody was a ten every day? It would be scary, uh, but in a good way, I think. Um, and, and I think that's that's the the. the problem we're looking for solutions to make us happier and healthier but the one thing that is guaranteed to do that and the one that actually we have to do whether we like it or not um is 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 sleep and we we neglect it when we we, we've we've become our we've become uh we have this idea that we can get by i mean that's what people are doing they're getting by uh, rather than thriving, and, and that 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 seems to be such a shame. Yes, I I I think it does reflect in my life that I'm a nine because I am very very full of energy all the time. Um, quite annoying, I think, to some people. But they often say to me, "How are you so energetic?" And I do think it's absolutely uh, majorly in, related to to how much I sleep. And I I found in your book you said something really interesting about how our lives now are so full of information, data. You know, it, you know when, when I was young, our lives were much simpler and we might have watched the odd thing on TV, but we spent a lot of time with a, a less busy life. And now we're saturated by the amount of information that we take in on a daily basis and, and how this can increase our stress and how when we sleep, we're, we're going to talk about how we sleep and why we sleep in a moment. But sleep is so important to process information so how do you feel about modern society and the needs the importance of sleep well one of the, one of the questions that you, you as a sleep expert always gets asked is why do we sleep and the answer is we really don't know we know what happens during sleep but we don't know why we have to do it for eight hours a night or roughly eight hours a night every single night but one of the things we do know that is vitally important 
uh, about sleep is it's the time you process information and you lay down memories. So essentially what's happening is everything about today that you experience, you'll keep in your mind uh, until tonight, until your deep sleep, and then you'll sort the information out. Some of the information you receive today is unimportant, so you can get rid of it, uh, but other is, is important. And you need to, one, recognize it's important, two, decide to keep it, three, put it somewhere where you know where you've put it, because there's no point in having information if you can't retrieve it. But more importantly, during the sleep, it's the time that you connect that new piece of information with all the pre-existing information that you already have. And as you say, in the past, and it's not too distant a past, you would be born in a village and you would not move more than five miles from that village for the vast majority of your life. Um, and so life was simple. You recognized nature you knew when the sun came up and when it went down and you knew when the summer solstice was at the solstice and when you planted the crops but it was all very simple information um and now i mean there was there's the great statistic that 95 percent of all information that has ever been created was created in the last three years because if you think about it when i was young you went on holiday and you had three rolls of film that took 24 exposures and that was it. Now you take thousands of photographs. And there was a startling uh, examination in the New York Times. The New York Times on Sunday in the US is a huge, thick, book-sized newspaper. And it was reckoned that there's more information in one edition of the New York Times on Sunday than somebody 150 years ago had to learn an entire lifetime. So we need sleep more than we have ever done, if, if not just for its information processing. Whatever else sleep does for us, we need sleep is more important now to deal with this barrage of information. And of course, if we don't deal with that information, that leads to what we call stress, the inability to cope and to function uh, correctly in the world that we live in. And that, I think, is, is the problem that we're faced. We are bombarded with information in a way that we never have been uh, before. And, and so, as I say, whatever sleep is about, um, we should be really optimizing sleep now uh, in this day and age. Great advice. And the million dollar question, how much sleep should we get? And in your book, you said that the eight hours a night is a myth. Tell us more. It is a myth, and and it has always been a myth. Nobody in the last 600 years has ever advocated eight hours a night. So, uh, as I say, I've read extensively uh, as much as I possibly can on this issue, and I can find no reason why it became this totemic idea that we all need eight hours. It just doesn't exist in the literature. Um uh, you know, back to uh, Andrew Board back in uh, 1547, he, you know, he basically says the time needed to sleep is between six and nine hours, which is exactly what the latest recommendations from the uh, scientific bodies in America say, six to nine hours. Eight hours is an average. It is not an ideal. 
the thing about sleep need is we are individual and in a way it's like shoe size or height. It's genetically determined um, and uh, so it's about getting the right amount of sleep for you as an individual. So how much is that? Well, anywhere between four and ten hours. Um, there are some people, very, very few, but they do exist, who can absolutely thrive on four hours sleep. There are other people who need to have 11 hours sleep to thrive. I personally know that I need nine and a half hours sleep uh, a night to feel at my best. And if I were to only get eight hours sleep, I'd actually feel pretty ropey. So sleep deprivation is classed as one hour less sleep than you need as an individual. So how much sleep do you as an individual need? Well, essentially, it's the amount that allows you to feel awake, alert and focused during the day, going back to the question you asked earlier about whether you're a zero or a 10. If you feel awake, alert, focused during the day, you've had enough sleep. Doesn't matter how much sleep you've had, you've had enough. If you say you feel tired during the day, well, that actually tells me nothing. Tired is what I like to call having a bit of a rubbish life. Tired is to do with, you know, it, it, it's dull and miserable. I didn't win the 62 million on the Euro millions on Tuesday. So, you know, I'm probably going to have to carry on working for the rest of my life. You know, it, it's just life's just not great. But that doesn't tell us anything about your sleep. If you have a problem with your sleep, you will be sleepy. And some people will say, well, What's the difference between being tired and being sleepy? It's very simple. If you walk up three flights of stairs, when you get to the top, do you need a sit down or do you need a sleep? If you need a sit down, you're tired, fatigued, knackered, exhausted. If you need a sleep, you are sleepy. And I think we often confuse uh, the the two things. So we we you know just put put the way we feel down to to life you know, uh, rather than looking at the actual cause of it, which is probably uh, that we're not getting the sleep we need. So I wanted to talk now about sleep environments. And um, many years ago, I realised that in my bedroom, I had my desk, I had a notice board with all the things I needed to do the next day. I often, before I went to sleep, the last thing I saw was my laptop. And then I was re- I was reading some things about our environment and I realised I needed to change that. So now I'm lucky in my house. I just, in my bedroom, have my bed. It's got my bed. Sometimes some cats, <laughs> but it's got my bed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so our bedtime routine, um, I I personally, so I we eat very early. I've got kids, so they like eating. They're always hungry. So we eat at about six. I often do some more work. Um, if I'm not going out, I often fall asleep in front of the TV. Might might be as early as nine, uh, but then I go up to bed about ten thirty, and I and I sleep. And I don't have an alarm. Um, I think that's one of my uh, helps in my sleep that I don't have an. I've, I hardly ever ever have an alarm. So I think that grating noise of an alarm. Um, but but nowadays we we do sleep with our phones in our room, and I did try to stop doing that. But I have been doing some online meditations, and if I ever find a bit of trouble getting to sleep, or if I wake up, I am waking up about five quite often. I put on a meditation or a bedtime story, and I'm asleep within seconds. So I think um, obviously social media has been a bit of a problem having those gadgets in our rooms. So what what do you think about sleep habits and what would you advise people about 
when they go to bed. Well, with with regards to uh, the bedroom, uh, essentially uh, you need it to be a uh, sanctuary for sleep. It needs to be the place you go to sleep and only to sleep. Um, so by going into the bedroom, you are saying, or getting into the bed, you're saying, this is it, I am going to sleep. Uh, therefore, there should be no wake behaviour or wake-associated behaviour when you are in your bedroom. Uh, so no no uh, phones or whatever. I remember when I first started, as say, back in 1982, there was the advice in the few sleep books that were around of not having a television in your bedroom. Uh, and this amazed me because we had one TV in the corner of the living room from Radio Rentals. Uh, the fact that people could afford two TVs was just bizarre. But we even had that advice then, not because of the not because of the blue light and all of this sort of nonsense, which has been the blue light story. 15 years old, not true uh, anymore. Um, but it was just like, if you've just watched The Exorcist, you're not going to get a good night's sleep. It's got nothing to do with blue light. It's going to do with stimulation of the brain. Uh, so the bedroom should be dark, quiet, cool, and comfortable. So dark, darkness is the signal for sleep. Um, light is the signal to be awake. So if you have light, and even very small amounts of light can be disturbing of your sleep. Uh, light at night is bad for you. There was a study a few years ago that showed that if at midnight you can stand with your back to one wall of your bedroom and see the opposite wall, then that level of light at night is significantly related to increased risk of breast cancer. And that's wow. scary. That's not just the bedroom should be a bit dark. It is your bedroom should be dark. So, uh, Heavy curtains, blackout blinds, eye masks, whatever, to get the room dark. Quiet, the World Health Organization says 35 decibels, background with intermittent peaks of 45 decibels. Now, nobody talks in decibels. It's completely pointless advice. 35 decibels is a quiet conversation in a library. 45 decibels is an articulated lorry going past your window. Uh, your average snorer, 65 to 95 decibels. So they are going to disturb your sleep. So your bedroom needs to be quiet. So earplugs or separate beds, separate bedrooms. Pool. In order to get a good night's sleep, you need to lose one degree of body temperature. You lose that body temperature out of your head and face because that's the bit that sticks out from under your duvet. So the room needs to be cool. The bed needs to be warm, needs to be thermoneutral, essentially 29, 30 degrees. But you heat the bed up just by being it. You're just big, one cuddly hot water bottle. Um, but the room, you need to have that temperature gradient. So even in winter, you shouldn't be heating the room. You should be heating the bed where you are and have that gradient. If the room is too cold and in this time of austerity and crazy electricity bills, wear a nightcap. It's green, efficient, costs very, very little. Wear a nightcap. If it's very cold, wear bed socks. If it's freezing cold, also wear gloves. Um, much, much better than trying to heat the room. And then comfortable. If you live to the age of 70, you'll spend 220,000 hours of your life in bed. You'll actually spend more time in bed than you'll spend in any one other position in your life and yet you think that you can pay 99 quid for a mattress from a man in a white van. Now, I'm not saying that you have to spend 
hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, on a bed or even thousands of pounds on the bed. But you should think about buying a comfortable bed. And the only way you can buy a comfortable bed is to get on the bed and try it out. You can't buy a bed off the internet. It's impossible to get the right bed off the internet. Uh, so try it out. So that's the bedroom. And then there's two other things you need. One is a relaxed body, but you know that you can be absolutely physically exhausted and not fall asleep. So the thing that is an absolute prerequisite for sleep is a quiet mind. And that's the bit that we fail at. If you are taking your cares and worries to bed with you, they are going to play on your mind, your mind's going to race, and you are not going to be able to fall asleep. So that quiet mind. And essentially, it's just about having a wind down, having a routine, doing something nice for 45 minutes or so before you get into bed, putting your cares and worries to one side and doing something relaxing and nice, whatever that may be. I read every night before bed, regardless of what time I get home, I read. Maybe a paragraph, maybe an entire book, but I will read. But that might not be for you. Listening to music, doing yoga, mindfulness meditation, whatever works for you will help you sleep. But it's that bit that we're missing. Most people's bedtime routine is to switch the telly off, have a pee, brush their teeth, flop into bed saying, sleep, take me, and being slightly disappointed that sleep isn't doing that. Um, you can't force sleep. You can't, you can't uh, encourage sleep. You have to let sleep happen. Uh, and you have to therefore put your mind and body in the position to allow sleep to happen. And I'm not going to say it's as simple as that, but we need to think about, you know, the way we live our lives and how that may be impacting on our sleep. I, I think for me, um, what my superpower is, even though I might have just been working five minutes before, once I decide I'm not going to work anymore and I sit down, literally my kids will tell you, I, I, I fall asleep within seconds. Uh, it's, it's, they, they say, think it's really quite bizarre, but I, I can amazingly switch my brain off. And I think that's, uh, that's my superpower. I'm going to take you up on the blue light, yeah. the blue light. So that's, yes, that's controversial. So tell us more about that because we hear that all the time. Is that a myth? You're saying it's a myth? You, know, you hear it all the time because people want to sell you a solution to a problem they've created. It's not a myth, but it is a something that's been disproven. The idea was that we, 20 years or so ago, uh, receptors that aren't image forming were found in the eye. Uh, so they're not part of the visual thing, but they are part of... Uh, running our circadian rhythm and they respond to blue light 460 to 485 nanometers blue light so light in that blue spectrum is a signal to be awake and when that blue light disappears that's a signal for going to sleep and as the sun sets the sun sets are red they're not blue they're red or the enemy of sleep and that you had to strip out blue light uh, but then we found out that it's not blue light, it's any light at night. So even a Kindle Paperwhite will disturb your sleep. So it's any light will, you know, whether it's red, green or whatever, uh, will disturb your sleep. So it's not blue light, 
stripping blue light out of your screen actually just makes the screen look muddy and dull. And so you switch the brightness up and it's the brightness of the light which is important. And also there was a study uh, from Scandinavia a couple of years ago that actually shows that your light is that you, you have a, a daily need for light. So if you work outside under a bright blue sky, actually using a device at night has no effect on you at all. Um, so the idea that blue that you know you have to strip blue light is not true any light. And the other thing is that our sensitivity to light is hugely different. So for some people, the amount of light from a single candle could disrupt their sleep. For others, uh, it would be sort of the light that you're sitting in now with a with a with a, you know with just a sort of a desk lamp and that sort of thing. That level of light would be needed to disturb sleep. So we are again going back to what we were saying about being individuals. It's your sensitivity to light that's important, not the color of the light. And, and as I said, with with uh, looking at social media or looking at your tablet or your, your thing, it's not the light that's the problem. It's what you're doing. It's what you're watching, that dopamine hit of going through TikTok or whatever, <laughs> uh, or watching, you know, some horrific video of whatever's happened in, in, in the Middle East or, or whatever. This is what's causing you to have an unquiet mind, not necessarily the light from your from your, your device. I mean, to be honest, to say I, I, I've been doing this for 42 years. I look at my phone before I go to sleep. The last thing I do is just scroll through Twitter, Facebook, check I've got some emails, look at the BBC news. And if I wake up in the middle of the night to pee as a 58-year-old man, that's what you do, uh, I will again check. And it has no effect on me um, because, you know, I, I, I'm awake. And it's not going it's, it's to make me more awake because I've already woken up. Uh, so I, I have no problem with, with phones. Um, but as I say, I, I'm, I'm 58 and I'm, I'm sensible with the use. Other people are not sensible with the use of their phones and will, unless you take it away from them, scroll all night. And, you know, a few years ago, the streaming service, Netflix, reduced the amount of time between episodes deliberately so you don't have enough time to consider not watching the next episode because it's already started. And the CEO of Netflix actually said, my biggest enemy is sleep. My biggest competitor is sleep. So, yes, if you if you abuse screens, then they will disturb your sleep. But as I say, it, it's, you know, it's not the biggest problem in the world. And as I say, the problem with sleep is it's been monetized. People want to sell you a solution. There's a lot of money to be made in sleep. Um, not by people like me, because I, I haven't got the brass neck to flog you something that doesn't work. Um, and common sense has never made you a fortune, uh, which is a problem. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's been monetized. And so you, you will, you know, magnesium supplementation. Everybody's going on about, you know, take magnesium to help you sleep. It will do absolutely nothing at all, um, except make money for people who sell you magnesium, etc., etc., etc. Thank you. I love busting myths. And um, I, I now feel a bit better about using my phone in bed, so I'm not going to feel so guilty. <laughs> but I, I think your advice is don't watch news at 10. <laughs> 
that's going to that's going to make your mind (laughs) so we won't do that anymore um thinking a bit more about lifestyle and individuality uh alcohol and coffee so um i've actually never drunk a cup of coffee coffee in my life so i but i'm very aware that i've got when we're at dinner there'll be some of the table at an evening dinner that will say oh no i can't have coffee past 10 o'clock in the morning midday two o'clock three o'clock and there's some that can drink a cup of coffee and be totally fine and alcohol i think is the same so i i i personally think that for certainly it will come on to uh women and things in a minute but but for many women going through the perimenopause i think drinking even one glass of wine might have an effect but at other times of their life it might not so how do you feel about um advice to people about alcohol and coffee well again as you said it is very very individual our sensitivity to caffeine is massively massively uh wide and as you say there are some people who should perhaps not use caffeine at all uh, and there are others who can have two double espressos before bed and sleep perfectly well so if you have had two double espressos every night for the last 40 years and you've never had a sleep problem uh, and you develop a sleep problem it's almost certainly not the caffeine uh, that's causing the problem something else has changed so we just need to be sensible about it Caffeine hangs around in the body for a long time, five to ten hours uh, is the half-life of caffeine. So for some people, having a coffee uh, at lunchtime or or two o'clock, you get that hit of caffeine. um, uh, But the thing is, the amount of caffeine to give you the hit during the day is a lot more than the amount of caffeine needed to disturb your sleep at night. And so that's the problem, that even though you've had a long period of time between the cup of coffee and going to sleep, it can still affect you. But it's about finding what's right for you. Um, But I have a friend um, who uh, I meet every once in a while. She's also in the sleep field. We sometimes have dinner together and we'll have a nice a three-course meal, a couple of glasses of wine, and then she'll say, I'll have decaf. And you think, well, you've just had a, a big meal and a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> the, the anxiety about decaf is much more than the you know caffeine would disturb you. With regards to alcohol, again, sensitivity is, is different. Alcohol has, since it was invented 9,000 years ago in Babylonia, uh, was uh, used as a sleep aid. It's the most widely used sleep aid uh, that there is. Um, and it is it works on the same receptors as sleeping tablets, so it is actually good for putting you to sleep. The problem with alcohol is that when it leaves the system, and so there are three issues with alcohol, and one of which pertains very much to the women you described um, so one is it makes you pee. Um, it's a diuretic, so it makes you pee. So you wake up and you have a pee. Two, it gives you that horrible headache um, because it's shrinking the brain and that's pulling on the meninges, which gives you that headache. And the final one, which is the one that people don't really latch onto, is the fact that it's calorific. I said earlier you need to lose one degree of body temperature to get a good night's sleep. If you drink too much, you have to burn off those calories. And burning off the calories causes heat, which makes your sleep fragmented. And this, of course, is particularly worrisome in women going through the menopause because their temperature control is 
shot to pieces. Uh, they have the hot flashes, hot flushes. Um, and so alcohol just adds to that. So one of the pieces of advice that you, you give to women uh, going through the menopause is don't do anything before bed that increases your body temperature further than it's already being increased uh, by the symptoms. And so alcohol in that regard is is causing that issue with, with temperature. And for, for women in the menopause, temperature is probably around 90% of the reason why they have disturbed sleep. It's almost exclusively the fluctuations in the temperature and the inability to cool down at night is the cause of poor sleep. And my menopause friends would say that they think many, in many cases, the symptoms that women are seeing during the day are exasperated by the fact that they've had poor sleep. So their irritability, brain fog, um, hot flushes during the day and, and all the other many of the other issues that they can have if they haven't slept well everything is going to be compounded and they're going to feel much worse so they exactly hmm, the sleep's just especially yeah, I mean, it's, it's a vicious cycle it's a, it's a vicious cycle and, and that's the problem that as you say um you know it's very easy to say um but if you have poor sleep, you will be more irritable. You will have more arguments with your partner. You will have less empathy with your partner. You'll actually have less desire to make up the argument. Uh, and even in, in extremists, there is, is a link between uh, poor sleep and domestic violence, increased levels of domestic violence. So, yes, the you know people um, very conveniently, both in in teenagers and menopausal women, they use the same excuse. It's their hormones, which means nothing at all. It's nonsense. But the two th- the two, you know, we know that if you have poor sleep, uh, you, you you know, there's a direct correlation between quality sleep and the amount of pain you feel. The worse you sleep, the more pain you feel. Uh, we know there's a direct correlation between the amount of sleep you get or the quality of your sleep and the amount of sugar you consume. So the more sleep you are, the more you crave sugary and fatty foods. Get a better night's sleep and you won't have those cravings. So if you're trying to diet or maintain a healthy weight, um, get a good night's sleep. That's the first thing you should do because then you won't have those cravings. You know, a particular weight loss organization calls them sins well <laughs> you know if you remove the temptation you're not going to sin we're getting biblical here <laughs> i don't intend to but, um, but if you if you don't crave sugar and fat you won't eat sugar and fat so there are we this is what i said earlier about it being the foundation if you are going through any type of situation whether physical mental or emotional Sleep is the thing you need to do. You mentioned a, a few questions ago about cats getting on your bed. If a cat gets ill, what does it do? If it could, if you don't take it to the vet, a cat just hides somewhere for five days, magically heals itself for free, and then comes back. But we don't do that. We, you know, you have these adverts on telly about powering through. You know, I've taken such and such a drug and I've got man flu and I'm going to power through. Why? Just go to bed for a day. You know, it, it, we've lost this common sense. And so, um, 
you know, the, the, we are sleep is just so fundamental to cope. I mean, talking, you know, using something from pain, you often hear pain patients say, if only I could sleep well, I could deal with my pain. And yet they get treated as pain patients, not as somebody who needs to improve their sleep. Uh, and that's where we're missing it. Sleep is, I'm not saying the answer to all problems, but of great many of the problems that we have, sleep would be fundamental to, to that. I do sleep well, but I do still crave sugar. So I'm afraid I'm, afraid I'm the exception. That <laughs> well, hasn't no, worked for me. I wish sugar's nice. <laughs> oh, but it's, it's the level, the amount that you that you eat uh, and i say there's a 33 percent increased desire for sugary and fatty foods and an 18 percent increase in something called leptin which is the uh, hormone that tells you you're full so when you're sleepy you want to eat you want to eat junk you eat junk and you don't stop eating junk so there's a say women who have poor sleep year on year put on half a bmi point this is a Swiss study over 14 years. Uh, so there is a direct link. And as I say, getting a better night's sleep will actually reduce your sugar intake without you having to do anything else. You don't have, you don't have to sell this to me. I'm, I'm definitely a, a big advocate of sleep. So let's go back to babies. Um and you you had a really good, interesting section about the way we think about our baby sleeping, and it's like you said, it's like a competition to see you know new parents to see whose child's going to be the first baby to sleep through the night. And, and I never agreed with that when I when my kids were babies, and um, you know mine mine slept when they slept, <laughs> and we co slept, and um, yeah, I was never one of these people who wrap their babies up, put them in a separate room and let them cry themselves to sleep night after night. I, I just thought, I thought that was child abuse, really. So what advice would you give to, to new parents with babies? Well, the, basically, that they're going to be a problem because <laughs> a newborn has absolutely no idea the difference between day or night uh, or that mummy and daddy have to go to work. They have no idea of that. And as you say, they will sleep when they want to because they have no circadian rhythm at this point. They will sleep at any point for any period of time they like. Um, and so all you can do with a child is to allow it the freedom to have the sleep it needs. Um, and a newborn needs 16 to 20 hours sleep. A 10-year-old needs approximately 10 hours sleep. Until a child is four years old, it should be having two long day daytime naps every day. Until a child is six, it should be having at least one long daytime nap. We don't do that. If you look at, if you go to Finland or Russia, um, places like that, they, they have cots in their, in their uh, infant schools. Uh, where the kids will have an afternoon nap every day. They will have a long afternoon nap. Uh, we fill our children's life up with with absolute rubbish. 
um, rather than allowing them to sleep. Oh, they've got football this week, this day, swimming the next day, Cubs the next day. They do this, they do that. Got to keep them busy, got to keep them. No, you don't. Just let the poor souls go to sleep and get sleep. But it has become a competitive sport, and it has it is a badge of my child's better than your child because it sleeps through the night. Whoopie do, well done, aren't you clever? You had nothing to do with that at all. The child just happens to be a child that has developed that uh, ability earlier. Uh, but we should allow you. We should. Your granny would have told you never wake a sleeping child. If a child's asleep, you should never wake it because it's get you. You know, I mentioned memory. Uh, you learn during the night. You learn new skills during the night, but also. Critically, deep sleep is the only time that you physically grow. You only ever grow when you're asleep. So we're mucking about with fundamental processes that the children need to go through. Yes, children are a problem. But as you say, this idea of children only cry for a couple of reasons, because they're hungry, they're in pain, they're scared, or because they want to annoy you. Now, I'm not a mother. And I've never had children, but I damned if I believe that anybody can tell the difference between those cries. And to so refuse, if you were sat on your couch at home and you were crying and your partner just left you there and ignored you, you would be rightly annoyed with them. And yet for children, oh no, let's just ignore it. It will self-soothe. It will settle. No, it won't. It'll just learn that you are a hard-hearted person who doesn't care about it, so it won't cry out anymore. Um, so, yes, co-sleeping. Co-sleeping's been demonised, and it's only ever been demonised in the Anglo-Saxon world. So America, UK, Canada, people say, oh, if you sleep with your child, you know, you'll get cop death. The Japanese sleep with their children, and they... Uh, have the lowest rate of cot death in the in the developed world. The prohibition against sleeping only applies to you if you are obese, alcoholic smoker sleeping on the settee with your baby. If you're not anybody like that, then the child wants to be with the mother. The mother is good. She's nice and soft and cuddly, and she provides food. It's brilliant. That's what mothers have been designed for. They are good at it. Men can't, at the moment, do that. So we're not much use at it. So children want to sleep with their mother because everybody can only sleep if they're safe and secure. So instead of having mother listening to her breathing, listening to her heartbeat, and the mother listening to the child's heartbeat and the child's breathing, we replace mother with a glow-in-the-dark Teletubby. <laughs> if you were to wake up in the middle of the night seeing glow-in-the-dark animals circling over your head, you would be petrified. But we think that's a replacement for mother. It is crazy what we do. And the only reason that we have put children into another bedroom is it happened in the late Victorian era when Victorian men wanted to have more sex with their wives. 
So they kicked the child out of the bed and installed themselves into the bed, which is why you treat your partner as though they are a child. Yeah, you're listening out for them in the same way you would listen out for the child. And of course, you can't get a good night's sleep because you're listening out for a child who's 20 yards away because you can't hear it breathe. You can't hear its heartbeat. So how the hell do you know that it's still alive when you wake up in the middle of the night? You don't. So, you know, this, there's this, again, this whole mythology that has been built around making women feel guilty about, you know, wanting, I mean, I, I do a lot of uh, lectures to healthcare professionals. And a lot of my audiences uh, of GPs, young female GPs from uh, the Indian subcontinent, and they come up and they sort of whisper to me, well, is, is it okay to co-sleep? And I say, yes. They go, oh, yeah, thank you, know, because in the countries they come from, it is absolutely normal to do that, whereas we have demonised this loving, bonding relationship with children. And I say, and we have, have replaced that with a glow-in-the-dark Teletubby, which to me seems horrific. Um, so, yeah. Probably I'm, haven't made myself very popular saying any of that, but who cares? No, I, I, I totally agree with you, and I did, I did all of that. I ignored all this propaganda that was around at the time when mine was small that yeah. you should they should they should have a nap at this time and you should wake them up at this time I never woke my kid I was <laughs> I think that was crazy to ever wake your kids up they're asleep <laughs> leave them leave them till they wake up and you know I'm as it's I said I'm quiet they're not doing anything <laughs> enjoy it and as I said I'm someone that doesn't use an alarm I'm I'm I just go with with my body and I went with their uh, rhythms as well but now they're teenagers they're all here at the moment because it's half term one of them was actually napping on the sofa when we started but he's, he's just sort of risen from the dead so teenagers they do go a little bit nocturnal and mine were in lockdown um just when they were really really going through puberty and beyond and so i i did let them just get their own rhythm to sleep so what do you what advice would you give someone with teenage kids about their sleep? And as you said, it's an important time to grow and for their brains to to sort of um calm down and reset. So what about teenagers and getting enough sleep? Okay, well the thing that happens with teenagers and, and we don't actually know why, um, is that they do need to go to bed later. There is a shift in their circadian rhythm. As I say, we're not sure why, because if you look at anything, there has to be an evolutionary benefit to it. And why teenagers would need to go to bed later doesn't seem to make any sense, but they do. Uh, the thing is, the shift is only approximately two hours. So what that probably means is your teenager is probably going to go, want to go to bed later than you do. Uh, and one of the things that parents do is, oh, no, you're, you know, we're the parents, you're the child, you go to bed before we do, um, you know, because that's the way it is. Well, it might not work that way. They might go to go to their bedroom, but they certainly won't be able to fall asleep. But it also means that they want to get up later. So your average teenager should be going to bed around 11, 11.30 and sleeping between nine and nine and a half hours. 
which means, of course, that they're not going to be able to get up at 7 o'clock. Their natural tendency is to want to get up around 9, 8.30, 9.30. Um, and so that's why teenagers find it difficult to start in the morning, but also, as I say, they need to go to bed later. So if a teenager says, I can't get out of bed at 9 o'clock in the morning, they might be telling you the truth, but a teenager who says they cannot get out of bed until two o'clock in the afternoon is unfortunately merely lazy. Uh, there is no reason, physiological reason, for that at all. But the problem, as I say, that they face is that school start times in England uh, or in UK are not too stupid uh, compared to American school start times, uh, but they are uh, not necessarily the start time of the school, but the travel to the school. I mean, I, I frequently get you know, early trains into London and that, and you see uh, children, teenagers on the train at sort of seven o'clock, meaning they must have gotten up at six o'clock or whatever in the morning to get ready. So this is they're not fitted uh, to the nine to five world that we, we, we push them into. Um, and uh, there is no reason why we shouldn't start school later to allow uh, teenagers to get up at, a, at the, you know, their biologically correct time and, and make it into school. That would help their academic performance uh, massively. It's, it's, it's thought that delaying start times in America increases uh, people's grades by at least one to one and a half points on a, a you know a, uh, your standard scales of, of exams. So the, the the again, there is nobody on earth who can tell you why schools start early, but uh, and people are surprised as to why schools start uh, end at three o'clock. <laughs> um, people say, oh, it's for the teachers to do marking and things like that. It's not. It's uh, the only reason schools finish at three o'clock is in the olden days, you had to go home from school and do some useful work on the farm. Uh, so that's why it finishes early. So, so there's no fundamental reason why schools can change. But yes, teenagers need sleep. Again, this is why they have this huge need for sleep, because their brains are transitioning from being children's brains to being adult brains. I mean, it's, you know, it's, sleep is all about you know processing new information, but it's also about uh, processing emotions. And so, teenagers become sort of emotionally uh, uh, mature, shall we say, in brain-wise, not uh, <laughs> actual-wise, but they become emotionally sentient beings, um, and they need the time to process it. And again, all the things that we ascribe to teenagers hormones their moodiness their miserableness their lack of motivation to do anything it's not nothing to do with hormones um it's got everything to do with their sleep um you know let's be honest teenagers were only invented uh, in the 50s and 60s they didn't even they didn't exist before then you were just a young adult and you were treated as such um so there's nothing unique about a teenager's uh, hormonal pattern but there is something different in terms of sleep and that's the problem i'm not saying that if you've got every teenager uh, a good night's sleep they'd suddenly turn into lovable creatures but uh, it wouldn't be a bad thing to start with mine aren't too bad they're quite lovable uh, but i wanted to, say, <laughs> to i wanted to um uh take up what you said about people being asleep on the train so i uh I um I don't normally get the train to London till ten past nine, and everyone's quite awake. But every so often, I do get the earlier train. If you get the seven o'clock train, 
they're all asleep. I've, I've posted about this before on social media. I mean, this is a terrible way to start the day. If you've got up, had a shower, had some breakfast, got on the train and fallen asleep at 7am, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the problem. I say this is this is the issue that we have that, you know, we have the nine to five working day, but it is never nine to five. There is, you know, the commuting. I mean, so I live, I live in Farnborough, south of London. So it is a commuter town. And you see these people, as you say, they get to the platform one second before the train arrives they stand in exactly the same place they sit in exactly the same seat and literally will fall asleep uh, the minute they get on it and then you see them again at the other end of the day at 6 6 30 getting the train back um, and this is the issue that we we you know we used to live and work in the same place so we, there wasn't this commuting and that sort of thing and again it's eating into sleep because we think that sleep is pliable that it will make it up at the weekend but you can't make up sleep at the weekend uh, that's not good for you and it doesn't work so it is a problem we we as i say we've we've extended the day because we have um, you know artificial light and, and central heating we've extended the day into the night whereas in the not too dim and distant past people always say the thing that changed the world was edison and his light bulb uh, it wasn't because we've had fire for 450,000 years we have illuminated you know the monks of lindisfarne wrote their uh, manuscripts by candlelight we've always had light uh, that allows us to see at night but what we didn't have was cheap fuel and it was the coming of central heating that allowed us to colonize the night because in the past you had to decide to put the last log or piece of coal on the fire now you just put the heating on it's not an issue it's not a problem and so that's the problem it's been a very modern phenomenon that we commute long distances uh, we get up we don't have an hour lunch break uh, you know we eat our sandwiches in front of our computer uh, all of these things uh, are messing with that sort of natural rhythmicity of our lives but i mean there's a there's a absolutely true but very funny story about people sleeping on trains um from waterloo to farmer you have to go through woking and one this is in the days of the slam door trains where you could open the door and just step out and one day a guy who always got off at woking so he woke up as it pulled into woking he woke up the train had pulled into the opposite platform so he automatically opened the door <laughs> stepped out and fell out the train um which you know he, he, he was fine and then slightly embarrassed but but it, it, people have you know they become absolutely robotic about their lives and then that that again doesn't sound like quality of life which we're all you know struggling to achieve yes and uh, another myth that you broke in your book uh, many myths for me that I was reading. Um, we sleep less as we age. It's something that, again, people always say, but you said it's a myth. Tell us more. It is. Um, and, and again, where this comes from, no idea. No idea why uh, this has become such a, an ideal. What happens, there's a couple of things that happen as you get older. 
Uh, one is that you may start wanting to go to sleep earlier and therefore wake up earlier. Um, that might cause you to think you have a sleep problem because you've woken up early, but you, you might shift wanting to go to bed a bit earlier. But the main difference as we get older is not that we reduce the amount of time asleep, it's that we lose our deep sleep, our deep restorative sleep, so-called N3 sleep. Uh, and we progressively lose that as we get older. And this has two consequences. One, N3 sleep, deep sleep, is the bit of sleep that makes you think like you've had a good night's sleep. So it's the restful, recuperative part of sleep. So if you don't have as much of it, you wake up and you don't feel as refreshed as you perhaps used to. Um, and so that might lead you to believe you have a sleep problem because, you know, when you were 20, you slept for eight hours, you woke up and you felt brilliant. Now you're 60, you sleep for eight hours and you wake up and you think, so what? Um, and it's common, therefore, for people to think, well, I need more sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm missing out on something. So I'll, if I have just another hour's sleep, I'll be fine. I'll get that missing thing. But that's a bit like trying to get drunk on shandy. <laughs> you can have eight pints of shandy and you won't get drunk. Having a ninth pint of shandy isn't going to make any difference. The other thing about this loss of slower sleep is it's the thing that drives your need for sleep. It's the pressure to keep you asleep. So babies, for instance, have huge amounts of slow-wave sleep. Memory, learning, growth all happens during deep sleep, so they need a lot of it. As we get to being an adult, it makes up about 25% of the night. So if you don't have as much deep sleep, you're more easily woken. And once you are awake, there is less physiological pressure to put you back to sleep. So again, there is also this thing that the elderly do is, well, what can I expect? I'm 75 years old. You know, bits of me are falling off, other bits are hurting. How can I expect to have a good night's sleep? Well, yes, there are some natural changes, which I've just mentioned, that can cause you to sleep worse. But there are plenty of other things that are fixable. If you get up and pee more than twice a night, you need to have that fixed. It can be fixed. If you have sleep apnea or snoring or you're in pain, these can be fixed. So don't just accept poor sleep just as a consequence of getting older. Now, there is a sex difference in this loss of slow wave sleep. Men start losing their slow wave sleep a lot earlier than women. Men from around the age of 35 or so, women from around the age of 55 or so. So over the age of 60, men against age match controls have worse sleep because they've been declining longer. So a man over the age of 70 will probably have hardly any of that deep sleep at all. So that's what changes. So you need the same amount of sleep. You're just going to find it a lot harder to get that sleep that you need. I wanted to finish off talking about tech and sleep problems. So I, I, I do snore. I mean, I'm normally sleeping alone, so it doesn't really matter. But there's, I've seen you know, gadgets for snoring, gadgets to help you sleep, sleeping pills. And there's these wearables that now people are wearing. And you've talked about this a lot in your book. People are wearing it. And one of my friends was becoming obsessive by it. And I, 
saw them yesterday and said, oh, you know, I was interviewing you. And he said, yeah, I've decided it doesn't work. And I said, no, that's what Neil said. So what what would you advise <laughs> would you give to people that are, you know, becoming obsessive with all these new tech that or potions and lotions that they say are going to help with sleep? As I said, it's becoming a monetized condition. Um, people see sleep as important, um, but because of that, they can uh, guilt you into paying money for you know. The, there's a, a robot that you clutch to your chest uh, that breathes, and you breathe with it. It's over six hundred pounds. God, <laughs> for this device, um, and it's, it's it's the size of a. a, a a pillow and it's hard plastic so once you form the sleep i don't know what you do with it when you turn over on it in the middle of the night or kick it onto the floor um but yes it, it, it's just been identified as i say as a uh, as a way of making money the national institute of clinical excellence nice um the medical county of sleep medicine the european sleep research site all say that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is uh, what you should do. So behavioural intervention. We talked about you know making the bedroom nice. We talked about quieting the mind. Uh, these are things that cost no money at all. You can do them yourself. Um, so tech is just as I say. People are you know we've talked about the blue glasses. You know people are even though the science is they don't work and there's good science that says it doesn't work. They're still selling it. People who claim to be sleep experts are still selling you a device that they know does not work. Uh, and then, as you say, this observed self, the wearable, um, you've got people going to their doctor saying, doctor, doctor, I've got insomnia. Why? How do you feel? Oh, well, my Fitbit's told me. Yeah, yeah but how do you feel? No, my Fitbit's told me. Well, your Fitbit's rubbish, uh, as with every other sleep uh, uh, wearable. They are not capable of measuring anything other than the amount of time you're asleep. They can't measure light sleep, deep sleep, or or uh, REM sleep, dreaming sleep. They can't measure that. I've I've heard people come to me and say, "I've got forty percent deep sleep," and I said, <laughs> "That's not possible. That that that's physiologically impossible unless you had absolutely no sleep last night, no, or the night before. No, I slept fine the night before, but I have forty percent. How can I reduce it? Or I don't have enough REM sleep." What can I do about it? Well, all you can do about it is get the sleep you need. The brain is self-regulating. It can, if you give the body the sleep it needs, it will get the stages of sleep that it needs. But, you know, and this this will come to the head. And I, I, I confidently predict this will happen. Uh, and I do hope I'm involved in it as the expert witness, because what will happen is somebody will drive from London to Glasgow have an accident and say, but my device told me I was all right to drive. And that's when the whole thing will come tumbling down. Uh, and I won't mention them, but a certain manufacturer of a certain type of device has been sued twice in America successfully for overclaiming what their devices can do uh, with regards to sleep. So, um, but as I say, there was a paper, or there was two papers published back in 1916 in New York by a guy called, um, uh, what was his name, James Walsh, who was the GP in New York. 
Um, and it said it was called they were both called insomnia as dread. And he said the biggest cause of insomnia is reading that you'll die or go mad if you don't get a good night's sleep. <laughs> now, the biggest selling sleep book ever uh, published of five or six years ago, uh, which I won't name because uh, he's sold enough of them, um, basically spends 500 pages telling you you'll die or go mad if you don't get a good night's sleep. The problem is that's nonsense. Um, you you know, nobody has ever died of lack of sleep. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the link, everybody says, oh, there's a link between poor sleep and dementia. Well, it actually might be completely the opposite way round. It might be that poor sleep is the first sign of dementia that we can recognise long before the cognitive decline. So it might be completely opposite. But it's enough to cause you to panic. It's enough, therefore, to buy a solution for your problem. Rather than taking responsibility for your own sleep and switching the blooming telly off <laughs> um, at a sensible time. Oh, you know, we, we, we need an alarm from Netflix to tell us that we've been watching Netflix too long. You're an adult. Look at the clock. If it says 11 o'clock, you should probably be going to bed. You don't need an alarm to tell you that. You don't need to do anything. Then they say, read a book, listen to some music. It's not difficult. We just refuse to do it uh, and, and just think that we can force sleep to happen just by lying in bed that sleep will happen. Well, no, it won't. A good friend of mine, Professor of Gerontology, well, Emeritus Professor of Gerontology at Loughborough, um, Kevin Morgan, he said, uh, falling asleep is like falling in love. He said, you have to woo it. <laughs> he said, the harder you chase the object of your affection, the more you will chase it away. And he said, you have to woo sleep. Uh, and I, I just think that's the, that's what we've forgotten. And the, the other thing we've forgotten completely is it's a pleasure. There's nothing yeah. better than a good night's sleep. Certainly nothing cheaper than a good night's sleep. And we've forgotten how good we can feel after a good night's sleep. And we try to replace that with God knows what else to make us feel good rather than getting a good night's sleep. I I love sleeping. I definitely do. And just to pick up what you said, you know, I just feel with this health tech in so many areas in my, in my field for sure it's not empowerment at all. It's exploitation, and you know we've 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 got to stop stressing people out with all these gadgets and and things. It's just it's just gone crazy. Now, in your book, you've you've done you've got so much more. We've really just skimmed the surface. So, if you're if you're <laughs> interested in this topic, please read Neil's great book. And you've got a whole section at the end that I absolutely love with so many uh, myths that you broke i absolutely loved it but i want to move now just briefly at the end um onto your new book coming out on the 24th of february called sleep divorce how to sleep apart not fall apart would you like to just tell us the bottom line well this is yeah this is again a, a part of the myth busting uh because we've been sold this idea that you should share a bed with another person <laughs> which is completely unnatural um, humans the only animals that sleep together for intimacy other animals may sleep together for warmth or for protection but we choose to do it um, 
But as I mentioned earlier, your average snorer is 65 to 95 decibels. I published probably the first paper about coupled sleep about 20 years ago now, showing that much of your sleep disturbance is caused by your bed partner. They move, they kick, they punch, they fight you over the duvet, they want the temperature a different level. Um, And the thing is, it's only ever poor people who've slept together because we didn't have the space. Rich people, go to any stately home in Britain, you'll see the Lord's bedroom, the ladies' bedroom. So <laughs> with um, uh, uh, my co-author, Jenny, a- Jenny Adams from Australia, uh, she wrote a book a few years ago uh, where she had interviewed her friends uh, about sleeping separately. And we met on a, uh, a Huff Post live uh, program in America uh, and we've sort of increased it. So it's basically a handbook. It's uh, why you should sleep separately and how to have that conversation with your partner and how to um, tell your sort of friends and families about it. Because, you know, there's this joy. I mean, there's this whole industry about relationship count. You know, if you sleep separately, it's the end of your relationship. No, it's just a recipe for disaster, as I said. More arguments, more divorces, more marital violence caused by sleeping together. And we've been sold this con of an idea that we have to do it. And it is nonsense. Buy a bed and have it the way you want. And this is one of the pieces of advice uh, that I, I, you know, that's important for menopausal women uh, is, you know, um, Jenny Hislop, a sociologist from Surrey and Oxford University, showed that women actually um, uh, disrupt their sleep for their partner. Uh, they'll actually uh, so a man will always shake a woman awake if she's snoring, but a woman will lie next to a man and put up with his snoring. And this is rooted on the idea that he's the breadwinner, he's the hunter gatherer, so I will uh, disrupt my sleep for his sleep. And this is prevalent. She she published a number of papers on focus groups that she did, as say, in Surrey and Oxford a couple of years ago. Um, and so women will, as I say, they won't toss and turn. They won't, they won't, you know, throw the duvet on and off because they think they'll disturb their partner. Well, get rid of him. He's no bloody use to you at this point. Um, get rid of him. And have your own bed, have the bedroom temperature, have the pillows you want, the duvet you want. Then you can toss, turn, get up, wander around, have whatever fans, whatever you want to do. And you're not disturbing another person. So the big thing is that plenty of people sleep separately, but they're not willing to admit to it. And so this is demythologizing this idea we should sleep together, telling you how to have that conversation and uh, making it easy so yeah the book's out uh well it's actually out now on amazon amazon have their own way of doing things and they've released it two weeks early without telling anybody which <laughs> caught us all on the hop um but, but it is out now on amazon and other good retailers but certainly amazon have got some in stock and they've even reduced it for us excellent buy it now <laughs> thanks, thanks buy it now buy it and- now <laughs> And my final questions, which I ask all my guests. So this podcast is called Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? So over your career, what have you heard people say that they they didn't know before and you've told them? What's the main topic? Well, besides sleep, but main area. I, I think I think really, and, and this is not dodging the question, but 
one thing that I found is that people don't want answers. They want affirmation. <laughs> so people will say to me, oh, I've got this sleep problem. I go, yeah. And I go, blah, blah, blah. And I go, yeah. And they'll go, and so I should do this, shouldn't I? And I say, yeah. And they go, thanks. <laughs> and I thought, well, I haven't said anything. You work that out for yourself. I actually didn't say anything. All I've done is just confirmed. So I think what the, the, the thing is that people know this. They just need somebody to tell them to do it. And so they, they've got this knowledge. We all know what we should be doing. And so my, my role in life is just to say to people, yes, that's common sense, do it. So I think that's it. I think a lot of people don't realise, but when it comes to sleep, they don't realise that they probably know the answer. They just have sort of suppressed it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, And what motivates you? So what makes you jump out of bed every morning and continue with your day? Knowledge, the desire to bust myths. Um, (laughs) This is what, this is what, I, I I hate there are there are so many people in the sleep field now who have got no qualifications, they've got no experience, they've got no knowledge about the subject, spouting nonsense to the world. Uh, and that's what motivates me that I, I have to fight against this. I have to tell the truth, make myself unpopular sometimes. Go against the zeitgeist, you know, like saying that children should, you know, you should pick them up and love them and whatever. You know, there's enough nonsense in the world and I can't abide it. As I said earlier, I got into this field by accident and it's been my life and I am going to damn well defend the science um, and make sure that. You know, people aren't ripped off, exploited, conned. So that's what motivates me, the truth, very, very simply, which is why my next book is shaping up to be about 400,000 words long just to disprove a single fact that has been said. And I I, I have been reading, well, last week I've been reading um, about uh, German, middle-aged German, middle ages German fire regulations in order, and I don't speak German, um, so <laughs> in order to prove a point, because, as I say, the truth is important, so that's what motivates me. Only in my little field of sleep, maybe. And what makes you happy and where is your happy place? What makes me happy? Uh, God, I'm going to sound so dull. Knowledge. <laughs> I love reading i love i cannot uh, i'm one of these people who will watch a, a movie on tv and have to have my phone there i mean you're watching these old movies on talking pictures tv have my phone there and i'm looking up actors and what other films they've been in and then i'll look at what the book is and i'll probably buy the book of the film and read it and I'm I'm just one of these people who has an absolute thirst for knowledge and, 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 and an innate curiosity about the world. So I can't just see something and just let it happen. I have to know everything about it, uh, which is why I buy as many non-sleep books as I buy sleep books. I mean, I probably read two to three books a week. 
uh, and and completely eclectic, but almost all I can't remember the last time I read a non-fiction book. But so knowledge makes me happy. Um, finding out things makes me happy. With regard to my happy place, it's going to sound soppy, but wherever my partner is, my partner and I live separately. She lives in Poland and I live here. We don't see each other since COVID happened. We don't see each other as as uh, often as as we do did um, because of Brexit and COVID and God knows what else has got in the way of life. Um, and so when I'm with her, I make sure that we're as, as happy as we can be, wherever we can be. Usually she loves climbing in the mountains of uh, Poland and I don't, but I pretend to do it and, <laughs> you know, regularly... It pretend to not have a heart attack whilst walking up these blooming mountains, but it makes her happy. So, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, wherever she is, I'm happy if I'm with her. That's Lovely. a soppy answer, isn't it? That is soppy a soppy answer. answer. Very final question. <laughs> um, what advice would you give your younger self? Seek wisdom from the wise. It's the, what I wrote in the front of my PhD thesis. Um, because there are so many people out there telling you what you should do, what you should eat, what you where you should go, and all of these sorts of things, and most of them are complete idiots. <laughs> um, and if if they say it in an authoritative voice or whatever, will get lots of likes on TikTok. People are apt to believe them, uh, and what that does is that it just uh trivializes what should be important and we don't listen to experts anymore we listen to people who are pretty or thin that seems to be their only qualification or you watch a program you know the bbc a few years ago did a program about sleep big big program about sleep um i helped develop the program i wrote some of the script for the program but because i'm a fat 58 year old i didn't get to present it but who did get to present it a gynecologist because he's good at reading a script and will wear a white lab coat on telly whereas i would never do that um so we listen to media figures idiots pop stars actors rather than actually listening to people who have a clue what they're talking about. And that's the saddest thing in the world, that we've, we've forgotten that there are some people who are knowledgeable, experts in their field, and there are a lot of very stupid people who have got a lot more sway on society than they should have, unfortunately. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, lots of people don't listen to me. I'm only a professor. They listen to a celebrity. <laughs> so, Neil, I can't believe that we actually got through everything. With I was that. Say, that, that was the longest script I'd ever had for one of my podcasts. But I, there were so many important things I really wanted to discuss with you. We we did it. We've been a long time. <laughs> it's a long podcast. So sorry, everyone, for making this so long. Um, but we have covered everything. So, Neil, I want to thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And please, everyone, read Neil's books. Thank you very much, Joyce. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.